Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin tonight this, this uh, brief series through this little letter of Paul to this church that he had such a great love for, product of the second missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. I'm going to read the first chapter tonight. We're actually going to, uh, you can probably tell from the outline, we're just going to, we're going to look, get a big picture of what's this all about? What's who, what, when, where, those kind of things, so that we know a bit about this before we engage it. We could also read Acts chapter 17. That's a good commentary. It fills in a lot of blanks for us about this, and I'll be drawing that in in this first sermon tonight. But for now, let's read God's inerrant, infallible word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, as we know from, from Acts 17, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, that first verse is what we'll be looking at next Sunday morning. We always give thanks to God for all of you, making mention in our prayers, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brothers, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but in every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Even just the reading of your word, it's a, a blessing to our souls. It thrills us as we, as we think that this letter was not only written to this church, this historical church, in a moment in time, but it has application continuing for us. As we work our way through this, we'll see how very appropriate it is for us here in the 21st century. We ask you to, to use it mightily in our lives. That it might not just be tonight or in the weeks to come a source of information, but it'd be, 
It'd be the truth of God that transforms us. And we ask you to do this in his wonderful name. That is the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Well, Thessaloniki is a city today located on the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. If you look it up, it has various names it's called. Salonika, Saloniki, Thessalonica, Thessaloniki. We usually refer to it as Thessalonica, and that's okay. But uh, it's important to know that it's still a very vibrant city. Some of you perhaps have traveled in Greece and you've seen it. Uh, it's the second largest city in Greece. It is today, just like it was in Paul's day. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important economic city. It's the center, in fact, the economic center of Greece today, just like it was at the time of Paul. So Paul would we go to these cities, and they, he knew that in these cities he would find all sorts of people. But he also knew, and I personally think that this is the, the more, more important reason Paul went to the cities, was that in these cities you had, particularly on the coast like this one was, you not only had the sea traffic coming and going, but you also had the major what we would call today interstates or highways. All the traffic for commerce worked its way east and west, north and south through these major cities, particularly Thessalonica. And so someone would come through the city. They would run into the Apostle Paul. After Paul was gone, they'd run into the Christians of the church at Thessalonica. They would hear the gospel. They'd be moving on in their business travels and they'd go to the next city and they'd take what they heard there to the next city. So it was, it was not the end of the earth. Things weren't just right there. It wasn't, a, it wasn't just a local end all. Everything moved in and out of cities like Thessalonica. And Paul's purpose was to get the gospel as far as he could. And that's why Thessalonica and Ephesus and other cities were very important for Paul. The thesis of the book is very simple. It's the thesis of holy living in the midst of immorality and doctrinal confusion. That's it, the whole book. Holy living in the midst of immorality and doctrinal confusion. That tells you it's still relevant, right? Well, I mean, we know that because it's in the Bible. But then when you see why Paul's doing it, you realize, oh my goodness, it's, it's just as relevant today as it was then. And of course it is because it's the word of God and the word of God is just like God, it's transcendent, it's not localized. And so it's important for us to study this here in the new year and hear the call to holiness and a 
and a call to clarity of doctrine. Because there's a lot of doctrinal lack of clarity, confusion, if you will, out in the world, isn't there? We'll talk about some of those things. But again, I mean, surrounding one of the major issues in this book, in chapter 4, where they're, they're confused about what happens to these people that died before Jesus comes. And there's still confusion about that in the world today. If you don't know that, you're, you're just not listening. As I've said before, you know, oh, as my sweet friend, I won't tell you what the relationship is. It's not in this church when his dear Dad died recently, just like when his mother died two years ago. He, he told me with tears in his eyes that Daddy got his wings this week, Pastor. Well, I didn't say, no, he didn't. And then the other one you hear a lot is, well, you know, been in agony, been in pain, been hurting, well, his, he's got a new body now. No, he doesn't. No, she doesn't. That's at the resurrection. He's free of pain. She's free of sickness. And her soul's in bliss in the presence of the Lord. But the body, yeah, you could say the body's free from pain, but it's in the ground. It's not a new body yet. And then, of course, another issue, chapter 5, Paul's dealing with is they had this idea that Jesus could come right like that. And he has to deal with them about that. Nope. It was such a, so bad that people were just not doing anything. They were just sitting around. That's happened all through the history of the church particularly since the 1830s with the rise of a few novel movements. Here in the States, the Millerite movement being notable. But anyway, we'll see as we work through. There's still a lot of doctrinal confusion on all sorts of doctrines, but certainly there's a lack of holiness. So let's look. When, when was this written? When was this little letter written? And the evidence is for A.D. 50. Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, A.D. 50, 51. The occasion is the second missionary journey that Paul takes. Again, you can go read that in Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9, is particularly when he's in Thessalonica and establishing the church there. There's opposition to Paul's ministry in Thessalonica from the Jewish sector. And that led to persecution of some of the believers in the church there. No surprise there, right? If where the gospel is, there's going to be persecution of God's people. And again, let me remind you, persecution can take a lot of forms. It's not always burning on the stake. 
It's not always being boiled in a vat of oil. It's not always being uh, drawn and quartered. Sometimes it's losing your job because you won't work on the Lord's day. But it's not always that even, is it? Sometimes it's being passed over for advancement. But it's not always even that. Sometimes it's just not being invited. Yeah, I just finished reading. I, I was given a book from my friend Jim Dallery uh, two or three years ago. Uh, it was an, uh, an autobiography on the life of, of a baseball player, a uh, Jeremy Ingram. Oh, see, he's missing a treat by not being here. Nobody gets to tell him this. He just gets to miss it. Bobby Richardson was second baseman for the New York Yankees, late 50s into the 60s. Played a short career, retired at his peak so that he could be home and, uh, and be with his wife in South Carolina and coach his, his children in their, in their sports. And he went on to, to establish the baseball program at the University of South Carolina. And then he started the baseball program at Coastal Carolina University when that university was founded. Uh, he's a godly man, still living, 90 years old. But one of the things that you read about Bobby is, is through that, and he was not bitter about it, it's just a matter of fact, is that all those years of playing for the New York Yankees and being in the spotlight, how often that he and his buddy, Tony Kubek, who was the shortstop for the Yankees, were never invited out after the games to go eat and drink and such because they're Christians. They don't want to have fun. They both told their friends, Mickey Mantle finally broke in and said, hey, come on guys, let's go. You can drink Coke. And so they would. Now the point is that there was a degree of, of persecution there because of who they were as Christians and because the team Mates knew it. Not because they were obnoxious. In fact, that's what led Mantle to keep calling Bobby Richardson through the years and led to his eventual conversion was Richardson being different in the, in the midst of all of his fame and notoriety. So there's persecution the Thessalonica opposition heard of Paul's reception. When Paul leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. And they hear that Paul's being successful there. And they follow him down there. So he's established the church. You can read on all this in Acts chapter 17. But he's established the church in Thessalonica. Opposition rises. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to be there and cause the church further harm, so he moves down to Berea quietly. The opposition, they've, they've done enough harm to the church, they're satisfied with that, so they go down to Berea to, to deal with Paul again. So Paul ends up moving on to Athens, and there, of course, you know that he engages the philosophical elite at the, Are the Areopagus, 
That's in chapter 17 as well, verses 16 through 34. It's there that Paul becomes concerned. He's hearing that the church in Thessalonica is being persecuted again because he's gone now and far enough away where they can't follow him around. So they've gone back to persecute the little church, the little, the little nascent church back at Thessalonica. And so he becomes concerned. So he sends young Timothy, who's traveling with him, back to check on things. And we read about this in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Those first verses, Timothy brings back a good report that they're, 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 they're doing well. Yes, many of them have, have lost, lost life, lost lost jobs, no doubt, lost the things of this world, but they were doing well as a church. They were persevering. And Paul was happy about that. And then he moves on to Corinth. And based on the Acts account, we can, we can fairly confidently say that it's there that he wrote these two letters to the Thessalonians because he writes them saying, Paul's back, or Timothy is back, he's reported, so glad to hear the report. Now let me address a few things that he's mentioned. You're doing well, but you, you've got a few, either you didn't, he doesn't say this, but I can imagine he was thinking it. Either you didn't listen to me very well, or maybe I didn't cover this, because I couldn't cover everything before I had to leave. And so he wants to, wants to go over these things with this young church and help them, instruct them. Well, that is the when and the what. Well, who? Well, it tells us right in the first verse, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're the ones that are the party that's addressing the Thessalonians because they were the ones who went to the Thessalonians back in Acts chapter 17. Now, Paul and Silas are the ministers, right? They've been a team since after the Jerusalem council. You'll find this recorded at the end of Acts chapter 15. That's the episode, you remember, where the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. And then Barnabas and Paul have a disagreement of some degree about Mark. Mark apparently in his immaturity had, had, had fallen off the, the trail at some point in the first missionary journey. He, would, he was apparently in the, in, the, in the role that Timothy was in this second journey with Paul. I'll just go ahead and say now, it appears that Mark was in that first missionary trip and Timothy is in the second serving some sort of what we would call today a ministerial internship because Paul and Silas are the preachers. They're the ministers. They were sent out in Acts chapter 15. So they're going, but they've got this young, this young convert, Timothy, and he's interning. He's going to eventually be the, the minister at the church at Ephesus when it's established, Paul's going to leave him there. And we get the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy to him, helping instruct him on, on his labors and how to carry on his labors. We know he was young because Paul reminds him not to, not to let, let th their problem with his youth is their problem. 
not your problem, Timothy. So we know he was a young man. Here we would have been even younger. And he's along, and at some point, as we've already said, Paul sends him back to check on the church at Thessalonia. So it's Paul and Silas preaching the word, evangelizing, establishing the local churches and all these locations, and Timothy apprenticing, getting ready for the ministry. Well, who's it written to? Well, it's written to the church. We'll talk more about this next week, but to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But who, 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 who is this? What's the makeup of this church? Well, again, you go back to Acts chapter 17, and you read there that it's made up of, of Jews and Gentiles. And then it says, and it was made up of a significant number of the leading women of Thessalonica. I just like that, don't you? A significant number. You know, one of the things in, in teaching through the years, I always bring out in the ancient church or early church course, is who these people were. You know, for years, I would hear preachers on radio and then on TV, and I'd read things about, you know, the church... The church was looked down on in those early years because it was all just, it was a bunch of poverty-stricken people. Just the poor people followed Jesus. You know, it's just a, it's a poor people religion. You may have heard that. You may have even grown up with your pastor saying silly things like that. But when you read the book of Acts, that's not the picture you get at all. These leading women, these would have been the Lydia's who we read about in Acts chapter 16. She was a very successful dealer in purple. I'm not going to go into that. We did that when I did the book of Acts. But she was, she was somebody. You look at, yes, yeah, some of the disciples were fishermen. But as I brought out in the study in John... The fishermen of those days, they were some of the, they were like the, the sea merchants of more modern times. They didn't have a cane pole and went down by the, the riverside and caught brim all day long. These were the folks that went out and brought in the big hauls and sold them at a premium price. And so we see even there the Jewish leaders, Gentiles, as well as significant number of leading women believed. And that's always going to be the case. God's always going to have his people in every place and they're going to believe. It's just our job. It's our privilege. It's our pleasure to preach the gospel so people can believe. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the preaching of the word. So we preach Christ and him crucified. We tell our neighbors 
Just like in the book of Acts, the apostles went preaching. Some days they were talking. Some days they were just speaking to one another as they walked along the street. Other times in the temple they were preaching the gospel in the karuxing sense, that is formally preaching. In all those different manners, the gospel went forth and that's the way it goes forth today. Sometimes formally from the pulpit, sometimes just in your conversation with people at work, at, at break time at the ball field, at ballet. I know I have some ballet people in the room. I grew up with a, with a ballerina. Wherever we are, the words of grace seasoned, words seasoned with grace, and so Paul and Silas preached and the church was formed there. So that's the occasion. That's the dating of it. That's who is writing to us. And that's to whom they're writing. And they're still writing to, to all sorts of people. Then the second point, what and why? Well, what's the reason for this letter? It's, it's two reasons given, to further build up the church and to defend the faith. G.K. Bill has a nice, succinct statement about this as to what and why for this book, and I'll read it for you. It tells us Paul intended to build up his readers both by defending his integrity, that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where he sets off to do that, and appealing to them to follow his own ethical example and that of a prior Christian tradition. That comes in chapters 3 and following. Follow me. Follow the Lord. Follow my example. And that was a moral example as well as a believing example. And so Paul's building up the church offering a defense of the faith in his letter. But then that brings us to, well, why? I mean, he's already been there. The church is established. Well, remember, Timothy's gone. He brings back a report, and he tells them things are generally good. They're persevering in the fight. The persecution is, is not, has not snuffed out the candlestick here. But then... Timothy says, but there's a few things. There's, they got some weird thoughts and questions. So Paul is going to address them. And first thing, though, Paul needs to address, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 tell us, is that they were discouraged. This little church in Thessalonica was discouraged. And that happens, doesn't it? I mean, we've... We've had a great year. 2023 was a wonderful year at Covenant. Number of additions of membership. We've heard the testimony of, of young people converted, trusting Christ, wanting to be a member of church, people who'd never been a member of a church before. We've seen God doing wonderful things in families. Financially, I think I can say without a doubt, it's, it's been the, 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 the best year financially ever in the life of Covenant Presbyterian Church. 
When you hear the budget report this Wednesday night, Bradley will be giving. You'll, you'll understand why I'm saying that. We're adding another missionary to our, to our financial support, not just prayer support, but also financially. David Chen, whom I hope you've, you've grown to love in his few times here with us. He and his sweet wife. Ministry going on there is remarkable. But there's also discouraging times. We've had people who've been members of this church for longer than many of you in this room have been alive, have fallen away from the faith, unwilling to respond to us and our pastoral approach, trying to deal with what's wrong. Why aren't you here? And we had to take disciplinary action. Children of families I'm going to tell you, those things can be very discouraging. You know, a month comes along and we're sitting in in our session meeting and the elders elders see the, the, the financial report and, oh my goodness, another wonderful month. God is blessing us. And then we have to turn and discuss and pray about wayward souls. And I know I can speak on behalf of the elders. We we don't leave the room that night after praying all pumped up because of the finances. We leave the room saddened because of sin and discouraged just a little bit. So this little church is discouraged. They're being opposed. They're young. And Paul writes to encourage them. He also, though, needs to address something. Chapter 4, verse 2 through 8, he's addressing some lackness in sexual morality. There's sexual sin in their midst. And he has to address that. How that came to Timothy's uh, note, we don't know. But he learned it somehow on his trip back there, and that was on his list of, Paul, we need to address this. Paul also had to dispel confusion over the relationship of deceased Christians to Christ's eventual second coming, chapter 4, 13 through 18. By the way, Every time we read about the second coming in the New Testament, you you realize that, oh, the purpose Jesus addressed it, the purpose of Paul's addressing it, the purpose of Peter's addressing it is to call the people to holiness now. It's really not about the future. It's really not about the end. It's about now because... Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and Paul here in this book, it's what he's doing in addressing this is calling people to holiness now. The fact that Jesus is coming is supposed to drive us to holiness now, not speculate about his coming or not sit down on the job, not to do this or that, but to be holy 
now because Christ is coming. In chapter 5, he goes on and he has to quell an overemphasis on the near coming of Christ. The imminency of Christ was driving these people to distraction. You ever met people like that? All they can do is read about the second coming of Christ, read books about the second coming of Christ, about this crisis, that crisis, that must be the portent of the second coming of Christ. And that's all they do. They're distracted by it. Instead of it driving them to holiness, it's driving them to speculation. And so he has to deal with that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, again in chapter 5, 12 through 24, he's, he's compelled to instruct these young Christians as to what is expected of those who call themselves Christians. Are you calling yourself a Christian? Well, then here's what you need to look like. Here's what's expected of you. The third vow that we take as members of Presbyterian Church in America, members, right? You promise to live a life that becomes a follower of Christ in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. The fifth vow deals with this to a degree. You promise to submit to the discipline and governance of the church and study the purity, uh, the peace uh, and, uh, of the church. Do you promise to, to study it? You're going to study how to live a Christian life? And Paul's calling them to that here as well. And he also wants to correct a faulty work ethic due to the overemphasis on the imminent view of Christ's return. You may recall from my last sermon in John several months ago now, I brought this up. I alluded to the misunderstanding and the false information that had spread about John perhaps living until Jesus came again. And all of a sudden it was causing trouble in the church about, well, you know, John's going to live. Well, then John died. And people got all, oh, no. Has Jesus already come then? Did I miss it? Was there some sort of secret? Something happened? And Jesus has to deal with it there in the Gospel of John, and Paul has to deal with it here. But he also wanted to address those who didn't understand and therefore had low views of church leadership. Chapter 5, 12 through 13. They didn't quite understand how God had structured his church. Or as, as my friend Guy Waters in his wonderful little popular book, how does Jesus run his church? How Jesus runs his church. They didn't understand that. And so they, they were just, you know, fifth vow was off the table for them, submitting to the governance and discipline of the church. Oh, well, we've, we've all got our opinion. Priesthood of believers, you know. His opinion's no better than my opinion. He's just standing up higher than I am. And so Paul has to address that. And then finally, it was his desire to express his joy and thanksgiving over Timothy's good part of the report. Because, as we learn in chapter 3, they were clinging to Jesus. 
You know, that's something we have to understand is that sometimes we, we run into our friends and they're in a particular local church and, and they may start telling us some things. And we're like, oh, man, they're doing some wacky stuff there. Well, that's not too good. But the church at Thessalonica, they were believing some wacky stuff about the second coming and about dead Christians. And they were tolerating some sin. And yet they were holding on to Jesus. They were trusting Jesus. And Paul commends them for that. So we can, we can love our friends and we can encourage our friends who may be in a church that's not exactly orthodox in every way and yet they're loving Jesus. They're clinging to Jesus. Now be sure it's the Jesus of the Bible before you commend them because there's a lot of false Jesus worship out there. But they're hanging on to Jesus. They're, they're holding fast to their faith. There's this Jesus only. They're not, a problem at Thessalonica was not the Galatian problem. It was not the gospel plus something. And Paul commends them for that and encourages them in that. So, that's the big picture. Hopefully, you saw in those eight why Paul wrote this letter that it's just as applicable now as it was then. We have spiritually immature who struggle with submitting to authority. That's one of the reasons church discipline is especially high among young people these days. We have misunderstanding about the second coming of the Lord and what happens when he comes. We have people who grow discouraged by outside attacks upon the church. And, I might add, in internal actions of the church. And we have sexual immorality. And so First Thessalonians serves us just as well as it did the church then as a call to holy living and right doctrine. That's what we're going to be doing for the next few months. Calling each other to holy living and right thinking about what we're to believe. And in all that, hopefully we'll be just like these folks here. Did you notice what a great commendation? Everywhere that people heard about this church at Thessalonica, wouldn't it be wonderful? Everywhere that people hear about Covenant Presbyterian Church, they hear about what a kind reception they give to godly men, godly leaders, godly preachers. And they hear about how we've turned to God from idols. To serve the living and true God. You know those people. They put away idols. They know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If the whole region. Thought about us the way the whole region of Macedonia and beyond. Thought about the church at Thessalonica. Well let's pray that it will. And that we might wait for his son who's coming from heaven and wait for him to rescue us from the wrath to come. Holy living while we wait on Jesus.
That's what we're going to see in this book. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We ask now that you bless this time and send us out in this evening to be holy examples to a, to a world that needs it. In Christ we pray, amen.